Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Seth David Radwell is the author of the Amazon bestseller, American Schism, a book that examines the United States political divide and attempts to bridge it through the lens of enlightenment ideals. Distraught by his colleagues' reluctance to engage in political discussions and civil debate, Seth set out to examine how we got to where we are today and how the nation's founding principles can be used to save it. He holds a master's degree in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University, which informed his research while writing American Schism. Before writing the book, Seth had established himself as an internationally known business executive and thought leader in consumer marketing. He previously served as president of eScholastic, the digital arm of the Global Children's Publishing and Education Company, and as president of Bookspan, where he developed book clubs for diverse readership. He also served as CEO of the Proactive Company, this leading skincare brand for acne, as president and chief revenue officer of Guthy Renker, the worldwide direct-to-consumer beauty company, and a senior vice president, content for Prodigy Services Company. Seth, welcome to the One Away Show. Brian, thank you so much for having me. It's a, an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been a pleasure getting to know you as well over the last thank few you. months. Uh, so, Seth, start us out. What is the one-away moment that you want to share with us today? Well, Brian, as, you, as you're aware, my life has taken kind of an interesting turn the last couple of years as I've uh, uh, published what's now become a best-selling book on really the state of our political discourse. So I think the, the one-away moment for me would be a, it's a cocktail party event, a business networking event in, I think it was April of 2019. And the reason why I mentioned that evening, because the last couple of years, I had become increasingly disillusioned by what was happening uh, to the nature of our political discourse. In other words, I, my view is that it had completely collapsed. But it was at that party when I was surrounded by um, many very smart people, people who uh, I know from business, from marketing. And it struck me that nobody there was open to discussing political issues. I mean, everybody, because the political debate had gotten so rancorous and so uh, with such acrimony, really smart people had what I called put their head in the sand. And it, I realized that political conversation amongst smart uh, professional people had become a third rail to stay away from. And I thought that was really dangerous. And so, but it was at that moment that I decided that all of the research and reading and, and some writing that I had done, I was going to actually use it to write a book. And that's when American Schism was born. Wow. I bet that was hard for you, you know, maybe bringing up topics and maybe seeing the pushback or seeing the quiet and timid nature uh, around people for potentially being judged or not knowing how what they could say would be used against them. So I'm just, uh, Seth, just for context, you, you had the insight at this cocktail event that I, led you to the writing this book, American Schism. How did you develop that insight? Were you ask, trying to ask people questions or engage on political topics? Like what made you realize that 
people were so shut off who were very smart, intelligent people. Good. So it's a great question. And so I probably owe you some background on this. So look, my whole career has been in business. I've, I've been fortunate to lead some wonderful consumer brands. Most recently, I was CEO of Proactive and I was in, so I was in skincare for a long time. And before that, I was in uh, publishing. So I've had a, a career where through, whether it's McKinsey Networks or, or YPO, Young Presidents Organization, I've met wonderful people. Because I have an education and a background in public policy, I've always enjoyed discussing contemporary issues with smart people. It's just been something I've always done, of course, we discuss business issues and marketing and what's happening in certain markets and what's happening with supply and demand and consumers and media. All of that is, of course, part of the regular discussion at business events. But I also often enjoyed debating with colleagues political issues or what was ever in the current political climate. Now, I recognize that Political issues are often emotional, but still, it was always possible to intelligently discuss them through most of my career, through the, the you know the, from the Reagan years on, through Clinton and Obama and Bush, and so it just seemed like there was some kind of categorical change that that in the last couple of years, uh, whereas it had always been a, a little bit potentially. Uh, lively and potentially combative because political issues are invariably uh it was usually interesting and informative to get other perspectives which i think is required in a democratic republic and so what i what i noticed when it became kind of third rail i said to myself something is different about this like there, there's never been such a a, a lack of willingness to engage on what are important issues. And my only guess is that people are afraid. There's no there's no um, upside. There's only downside of discussing such issues because there's a chance you're going to enrage a customer base or get in trouble for saying the quote unquote wrong thing. You know, since everything's gotten so politically correct. So so it seemed to me there was this categorical difference. And that's what led me to uh, say, you know what, I've been doing this research. I've been reading about this. I'm going to I'm going to embark on this journey to actually try to write this book, American Schism, which is going to explore what's happened to our political discourse, why it's collapsed mm -hmm. and why uh, very smart people don't seem to want to engage on important topics that affect us. Absolutely. I love what you said about, you know, the network and that you've built and the how they, these are established people, but they're scared to maybe enrage a customer base and internal right. culture. Uh, and I, I want to build on that but sure. in, in a minute, but the fact that you're cognizant, you're cognizant of, wow, this is a really a treacherous topic you know, or, or contemporary issues that we just can't go into yet. What's to me, the irony is that these are some of the people who, you know, if they come together can probably have the, some of the biggest change um, around these issues. So one thing I want to ask you before we build on what you just said is when we first met and we were having um, lunch at New York, you're talking about growing up and how yes. you, you were notice the political issues and um, you know, with your family and talking about things. And how right. did your interest in public policy develop? It seems like it's been prominent from a young age. 
That's true. That's true. Um, but you know, before I get to that, one thing I just want to highlight what you said is so true, Brian, which is that the reason why it was distressing to see this 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 unwillingness to engage among smart people was you're right. These are leaders. These are people who potentially could help solve problems. So we need smart people to engage if we're going to move past our current impasse. So yes, that that's why it was so it was so distressing. But to answer your question about my history, I think. Look, I've always been engaged and interested in policy uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I come from a very uh, middle class family with working class roots. My ancestors were uh, immigrants here. So my parents were born here, but my ancestors were Eastern European immigrants with nothing, came here with nothing. So I've always been uh, impassioned and quite animated by the notion of the American dream that, you know, I feel like I've been a product of it, that America is a place where as a meritocracy, anyone could come and be successful here. So uh, I, I've always bought into that kind of illusion, if you will. And over the years, since I've always enjoyed reading history and political science, I, I've read a lot about how that came to be. First, I guess the first time when it struck me personally was, again, in knowing that I was from a Eastern European Jewish family that had fled persecution and came here. So that that was a big part. And so having a sense of what it was like to be disenfranchised, which my grandparents were and my parents were trying to build assimilating into American life and building a life. And then I guess, you know, as a teenager, I, I realized I was also somewhat disenfranchised being at the time, uh, closeted as a, as a gay person, which, you know, growing up in that point of time, it was not so acceptable to build a very professional life and be kind of not typically heterosexual with, you know, two kids in a garage and a white picket fence. So I knew my life was ha had some differences. And I guess that that, that maybe made me inside uh, personally sensitive to the notion of the, the whole concept of disenfranchisement. And so I was I was thus more uh, aware of minorities, whether it was African-American or Latino, who didn't had various forms of disenfranchisement. But still, all during my early part of my life, I always believed that America was a place where the story was about moving towards a greater enfranchisement, a greater embracing of those voices, which is why I was such a, a, a passionate fan of of uh, kind of the American story. And it was only in recent years that I saw kind of the other side of that. Not to say that that America isn't a wonderful place because I still believe it is, but I don't think I was fully cognizant of the depth of its flaws and the degree to which a lot of what's promised in our Declaration of Independence, our credo, so to speak, how we've fallen short of delivering on it over the course of our history. And it was, it was, this awareness as I was getting older that I think maybe even more attached and sat and interested in public policy. I did, you know, obviously when I was in college and I was exposed to some of this stuff, it, it gave me interest to go to school for public policy. I went to get a master's degree um, at the Kennedy School at Harvard in public policy and economics. And I thought I was going to go into the State Department at that time in my career. And one thing led to another, and I ended up getting recruited by McKinsey, and I got into business. So I never actually served in a public policy role, but obviously the interest was established in my early 20s and, and built on, uh, through my graduate school years.
the way you were talking about your family and, and how they immigrated and, you know, a sense of dis, disenfranchisement. Um, and then for you personally growing up with your own backstory, you know, being gay, trying to find your place right. in the world. America right. was this place to like come together and like belong in a way that you felt you could be understood. Yet you're relating it to what, as your awareness has grown, maybe it's not everything it's all cracked up to be, or it still is, but you're, you're aware of the issues and the, and the pitfalls and, and you're, you're working to bring those to light to make things, you know, maybe the, like the America that you, that you wanted for yourself growing up. So it, it's really interesting to connect the story of your background to where you are today. Absolutely. Well, that, that the whole thing is I've gotten more into this, done more research, you know, like most uh, issues, it, it, there's complexity here. And in some ways, this, the simple analogy would be, it's like a glass half full, half empty. I mean, I do believe that both the political extremes today that that are are willing to throw out or criticize or break down the American journey as being one that's either kind of on the left, it's often tarnished by incredible abuse and, and um, racism, et cetera. On the right, it's uh, as if it were kind of a, a, a white foundational American story. I think both are, are wrong. I mean, America is a... The glass half full part is we are probably in the history of the world, the best example of a a model of self-government that's ever been that's ever been on the planet. Now, I say that, but at the same time, recognizing that we have huge flaws, our self-government, which is, is probably the most transparent of any republic of this size, yet it's still not transparent enough. There's a lot of um bureaucracy that's hidden. There's a lot of cronyism. So again, you could always look at it from both sides. And I I make this case extensively throughout the book, American Schism, because besides being, you know, I think what America has become uh, the envy of the world for is two things. Is one, this this notion of self-government and how we manage to do that. But the other thing that we're also the envy of the world uh, for is often on the notion of meritocracy, that we were a place where anyone could come and make it irrespective of their birthright. They're not, it's not, just because you're born into a noble family doesn't count as success in America. It's what you put into it and your work ethic and what you strive to do and, and achieve. And that itself as well, the, mer- the meritocratic model is also a glass half full, half empty. And in some ways it's wonderful. But in many ways, it's fallen short because our model of meritocracy, in some cases, is very broken. We're not giving a meritocracy requires, as I discussed this in some length in the book, a meritocracy requires the notion of a starting, an equal starting line, an equal access to opportunity for everyone. So everyone has a chance. And we've been far from achieving that in many ways. So, but at some, in some ways we have been very meritocratic. So again, like democracy, like our model of self-government, our model of meritocracy is also glass half full, got left empty. My notion and what I argue for so passionately in American schism is that unlike many who argue today that we need to change these models or give up on them, I argue that we need to try to continue to improve them. That we're move, we've moved in a in a direction of of towards progress, and that we have to continue to do that. We have to. We'll never reach an ideal because these they're both they're both American democracy and our meritocracy are in fact both ideals, and we have to move towards achieving them 
as, as, as best as we can, given the constraints of our time. And that's kind of our journey. In some ways, it, it, it is interesting that when you look at the American history, um, you know, as, as you know, and as many Americans know, when the Constitution was written in 1787, the vo- a voice in government, the right to vote, was given to white men with property. That was it. And to some degree, the story of our country has been this story of increasing enfranchisement, of giving this voice to more people. And it's gone through phases. I mean, in Andrew Jackson's tenure as president, he extended the right to vote to all white men, regardless of whether they had property or not. At that time, so you could look at that. At that time, when Andrew Jackson was president, we had, we had at that time had the largest democracy that ever existed on the planet. But still, it excluded a lot of people, African-Americans who were still enslaved, Native Americans who weren't considered part of the union. So, so it, it was very limiting, but it was still the largest uh, democratic experiment. So it's been, it's been this, as the great Martin Luther King said, you know, the arc of, hit of history bends towards progress. And I think our history has shown that. But at the same time, we have to be able to confront our problems and our issues. And I find that the extremes on both the left and the right today are not doing are not doing that productively or constructively. They're willing to. The, the, I mean, the extreme right is is basically living in a bubble of non-reality and the extreme left, uh, which I characterize by cancel culture or, or this notion of of denying the progress and the, the, that our institutions in America have achieved uh, are seemingly willing to throw away our institutions. And that's very dangerous. And so that's why it was the, the combination of those different forces that I think led me to see why all my smart political colleagues, uh, smart uh, business colleagues, I'm sorry, didn't want to discuss politics. And, and I thought to myself, if that's how, if that's the state of affairs, then we're not going to be able to hand hand off a democratic government, a democratic republic to our children. Mm -hmm. And that would be pretty horrible. Absolutely. You know, I really like how you are looking at it with that glass half full mindset. What is the progress we've made? And yes, it might have started out and for people who who have were property owners yet that that has expanded to so many Right. Yeah, there's still there's still issues on each side where right. around you know making it hard for people of certain races to vote. You know, there's 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 hard things on both sides. But what you're saying is, over the test of time, if we look back hundreds of years, there's been a large amount of progress. And right. We need to understand it, but if we're not careful, we could lose all the progress that we've made. So I I want to transition to something that you said in uh, as you were wrapping up. You said. You know, you said this is why it's hard for the business colleagues to engage. Now, my question for you right. is if you were to give a speech in front of a hundred of the top CEOs and in, in, you know the four, top Fortune 500 CEOs, what what would you tell them to engage uh, in a way that was respectable, in a way that didn't burn bridges? Uh, right. It, what, how would you how would you tell someone to go about that? Well, the first uh, the first part of what I would say to them relates to the fact that, of course, business executives are usually most concerned with running companies and maximizing, you know, the, the, their business. Whether it's how they serve customers, how they make profit, how they grow 
their company. So of course, the the, the various business concerns uh, are are primary, and that's what they focus on. And it's easy to get caught up in only seeing those. But what I'd ask them to do is have a little bit of a wider perspective and realize that the success that they've achieved is based on a, a framework of an open economy, a liberal society that has invested in educating a class of, of, of people to perform and, and, and do those functions that make their company great. And that all of that, let's call it infrastructure, physical infrastructure, but also the constructs of an open liberal society with wonderful education systems, despite obviously obvious problems in many areas, that that is all is what is created the fruit of their success. Mm-hmm. So of course it's their 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 individual marketing strategy they came up with that year, or their budget plan that they did last year, or this these new investments they made. I mean those are all the close in uh, um, specific activities and objectives they've achieved that's led to success. But the broader definition of success is very important in understanding where they've come from. And therefore, as leaders, as leaders in their business, they also have a role to play as leaders of their community uh, and leaders of of the American public discussion. And so that's what I, I would start off by explaining what responsibilities they have to beyond just the, the PL of their business. Now, and if they push back, which they often do, um, I'd ask them to place that framework in, in the sense of what they want for their children. Because mm-hmm. usually when it comes to family and children and community, it's quite easy to see how important you know, leadership is in all of those dimensions outside of just the business dimension. And so I think that's the first conversation. Now, once once I, I think uh, uh, people, uh, colleagues of mine see that, they may second guess why they've been so silent or so reluctant or hesitant to call out things that they see that are not right. And they happen around us every day. Yeah. Every day. I love what you talked about, because I think that there's two sides to this. It's or, or two, two things that were insightful in what you said. It's like, be, be grateful or recognize the foundation that's in place for allowing you to build the business or develop that marketing strategy, because we do operate in a, a government that enables you to build a business and not have, you know, someone else have control like in other countries. And then the second part, you know, the family part is interesting. It's, you know, not to get political, but, you know, let's just say get rid of police fully. Well, would they want their kids to grow up in an environment that's not not safe? You know, you can kind of really paint the picture from a, a family perspective that says, okay, well, how will you think about this for your family? So you really, through that, I think you can help them internalize of how they've kind of walked in the world. Absolutely. And, and what you can do is also realize how, how sometimes how our public debate has become so trivialized around symbols. Uh, like, like, you know, you're referring to this whole debate about, quote unquote, the defund the police campaign, which has become such a political football. I mean, what, was, what began as a set of true critiques about the nature of how policing was implemented in many parts of the country was based on real problems. And, and I, I think a lot of that discussion has highlighted how 
racist and how unfair some of our policing has been. There's no question about it. Right. And it's led to many deaths and police need reform. But, but, but that led to this whole extreme left movement called, well, let's defund the police, which was then, you know, made, made it sound like we were going to have anarchy. And of course, the right picked up on that and it became a political football, like most issues today. I mean, another one would be immigration, where you, you have two sides, you know, one calling for build walls and the other saying open borders, both of which tend to make a caricature of the other side which leads to no progress at all, a, 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 a counterproductive discussion. You know, immigration, like, like many of these things, is a complex issue. And there are many aspects of the immigration uh, landscape, many specific problems that need addressing. Once again, here, as I discussed in the book, history can be a guide. Over the course of our history, we've had many periods when we've had a need for immigrants for certain skills and certain jobs, and our immigration policy has been designed accordingly. And there have been other times when our immigration policy has been more xenophobic and has not allowed certain types of people to, to come to America. Hmm. But the right answer is that we can have completely closed borders because we immigrate immigrants have, are what have built this country. <laughs> And we also can't have completely open borders where anyone could come in. We need a system. And what's frustrating, Brian, about this, and I can use a concrete example, is eight years ago, the Gang of Eight on the Hill, which were a group of leaders of the Republicans and Democrats together, had come up with a very comprehensive bill of immigration reform that was detailed. It, it addressed many of the issues that are plaguing us today. And because it was a compromise coming together, it was far from perfect. In fact, people on the left were very upset because that particular comprehensive program had quotas. They weren't called quotas, but they were effectively certain quotas. And people on the right were very upset because that comprehensive plan had a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. So it, it, my point being, it didn't make everyone happy but at the same time, it was a set of pragmatic solutions based on compromise. Now, here we are eight years later after, you know, after throwing around slogans like build a wall and open borders. And we're much further away from a solution. You know, we had this pragmatic framework we could have built upon. And we, we tend now to throw it all away and, and take one side or the other, which is ludicrous. Immigration is a complex issue. You know, so, so this is a good example to me of where reasoned debate and rational thinking and objective facts matter. And we cannot discuss these problems only from the perspective of the emotional environment of Twitter or social media and throw slogans around at each other. And that's true for so many issues that we face today. Absolutely. Well, I love what you said. You know, you talk about um, fighting on reason with reason, which I, I really resonate yes. with. Uh, and, and from the lens of, let's just say, back to the business leader, right, that you, right. you're talking about, you said first, I'm just kind of think of a, our own system okay. of dialogue here, right? You said, sure. you know, be appreciative of the infrastructure that's in place that's allowing you to do, internalize it with the family. But once you take that step, it sounds like, you know, yes, you might be emotionally impassioned, but you got to look at the objective and, and facts around things. I mean, what what is that next step in that conversation, though, to, you know, once you 
have an individual kind of internalize it on their themselves, how do you how do you move the conversation along effectively? Well, well so the one of the structures that I argue for in the book is breaking out of our, our the, these twin these two bubbles that we're in. So so people recognize and talk a lot about the fact that we're in. We're often in a partisan bubble. We get our source of news from one place and we, we're seeing stories that reaffirm how we think. You know, part of what builds our constitution of knowledge is an ability to be open to the fact that we may be wrong. We have to be able to let new information enter and adjust our thinking based on facts. So the, so the first part is about really questioning our source of information and how we evaluate facts, information, sources, et cetera. And then the second bubble that I think we're caught in is a time bubble, meaning that we think our problems today are so unique that they're so, it's the worst political divide we've ever had. Well, the truth is history has a lot to tell us. Where we came from and what we've struggled with in the past is often relevant for our issues today. And the historical perspective can act as a solve for our wounds. So, you know, it's always good to give you concrete examples of this. I think one of the concrete examples that's relate relates to a very topical issue is the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Very emotional issue. You've got the left trying to figure, or the, the Democratic Party, the establishment trying to figure out what happened, doing a real investigation. And you have many on the right who are trying to whitewash it because it, it, you know they fear it, it will it will undermine the big lie that Trump has been putting forth about how he won the election, which of course is not true. So you've got these these two things going on, but yet very few are talking about understanding what happened on January sixth in the context of history. Hmm. So let, let's take a step back and talk about that for a second. You know, January sixth was hardly the first attack on the government. We, the Constitution wasn't even written in 1787 when there was something called Shays' Rebellion, which was her rebellion against the government in Massachusetts. And there was another rebellion a couple of years later called the Whiskey Rebellion. And the, of course, these were very different situations, but at their core, there was a very fundamental similarity, which is relevant, which is the following. You know, we're a country that was born out of rebellion. We rebelled against the British crown declared independence violently and created a new republic. So if that's the model, every time there's a grievance, people might think they have the right to rebel violently and create independence. <laughs> that's where we came from. But in fact, when you understand, for example, in, in Shays' rebellion, Daniel Shays was a veteran of the Revolutionary War. He was a farmer in Western Massachusetts. So it's important to understand what he what they were so upset about. Daniel Shays was injured in the war, as many of his colleagues, which you know, many of his, his his contemporaries also died in the war. After almost sacrificing his life to, for American independence, a couple of years later, the Federalist plan for paying for the war was to tax a lot of the farmers. So these people who were injured and wounded and many killed were now being asked to pay for the war, and they were furious. And that's why they rebelled against the government of Massachusetts. Now, there wasn't a federal army at the time, but Washington, in his brilliance, had to navigate between understanding their grievances and, and, and trying to solve them and address them, while also recognizing that they had no right to overthrow the government. 
that mm-hmm. violence had to be quashed. And it's very, very similar to what happened on January 6th. You have people who, and, and I go into this in the book in some detail, I mean, the grievances that many working class Americans have felt, especially in rural areas, because they've been left behind by the economic globalist capitalist kind of framework that we've we've been pursuing for 40 years, they have some real grievances that are worth listening to, and we better listen to them. And part of the rage that comes out of many Americans, as I discussed in American Schism, is that the establishment, both political parties, have ignored them for too long, have in fact shown them disdain. Whether it was Hillary Clinton's, you know, calling the deplorables or or Mitt Romney talking about the takers, both everyone in the political establishment to a large part has shown disdain for working class Americans outside of elite circles. And that has led to incredible rage. My point being, understanding where that comes from and, and, and trying to address it is the responsibility of public officials at the same time. It doesn't mean there's there's an allowance or permission to attack and overthrow the government, and and violence has to be suppressed. And we've seen this in many examples, whether it was, as I mentioned, the Whiskey Rebellion, Shays Rebellion, or the Civil War. Our history has been one of recognizing the right of protest and addressing grievances while trying to avoid and 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 quash violence, and so that's it's under against that backdrop that we really need to understand what happened on January sixth. Mm. Well, you give it good context because you're saying this is the underpinnings of how America was built. It was you said it was country born out of the rebellion, right? Uh, and so, well, January sixth happened. It's no surprise because of the past history yet. Part of even though like that's how we've built as a country, it doesn't mean the way it happened was right and violence should be squashed, especially in the way it was handled. Well, so so this More is the point. This is the, the point is when you look at the rep, the founders, the, the founding, the founding fathers of our country and all their writings. And they did. And this is very much explored in American schism. They they argue they made a case regarding the grievances of the crown that was so thorough and so dependent on showing that. They exhausted all measures of trying to address their grievances. And and they argued and postulated that violence is only permitted as a last resort after all of these other methods are pursued. And so they created, if you will, a hurdle, a criteria for when true violent rebellion is required. And my point is, is that the situation today, so far short of those hurdles, that's why it's kind of a travesty, because we're not in a situation where there's reason to overthrow the government. There could be certainly reason to protest and to vote. You know, only 60 percent of Americans vote. If things are so bad, why don't the rest of them vote? Many of the folks who were willing to attack the Capitol on January 6th, many of them have been disenfranchised by themselves, have dropped out of the political process. My point being, you know, we could spend hours discussing the, the motivation behind what happened on January 6th. And surely there were many protesters there who were not violent, probably the majority. But there has been over the past couple of years, and I blame Trump and his administration for this, an absolute encouragement and incitement of violence. That's been part of the method which demagogues often use to get support. And it, it's both, it's very well documented in history that documentation and that historical record is 
recapitulated in American Schism in the book. And it's very scary because it has been used in, in ways that have been very violent and very counterproductive over the course of recent history. Absolutely. And, you know, to build on that from a global narrative, I mean, I found myself after that just almost embarrassed, just beyond embarrassed and what embarrassed to be like an American, you know, because your perception of others around the world is like, wow, this is your government. Right. Um, it's a little, but, yeah, exactly. I, 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 I can relate to that. It just you're right. It wasn't incitement. I think it was, it was the wrong way to make a message. But I appreciate you're using the constructs of the book, though, to to share how how and the history behind it. Um, something I, I want to keep coming back to this cocktail event, just because I think it's, it's so pivotal in this whole storyline. Um, I don't know if you've thought about this, but I I've thought about this a lot actually. You know, I think running a business or being in business up until recently. My, my my focus was very um, let's just say tunneled on what I could control. Right, business was a means of execution, uh, a means of creation, a means of I have a goal X, I achieve Y, and and that consistent wheel is it's what creates that dopamine. And I think sometimes in politics, when when discussing it, it feels almost as if if you yourself can't have that much of a difference or it's going to take a very long time, like why engage, why try? Why try? Again, that's how I felt for a lot of years. And I think the last couple of years I've like, oh, wow, this is a big world and these decisions have a major impact. But it's taken a while to get there. So my question for you is what would you say to the person who's maybe in that old state or that state I was talking about where they're more closed-minded, they're in their tunnel how do you get them out of the tunnel, so to speak, and help them open their eyes up and then say, you know what, progress might take a long time, but you can make a difference. Like how would you go about engaging someone in that conversation? Yeah, there's a, it's a wonderful question. And the, the analogy that I use is it relates to concentric circles and, and you start locally. So, you know, while it's true that, that to change federal policy, let's say, is, can seem really hard. You, you know, political, the, the, the polis itself starts at the community, at your family and then the community. And I think the first thing to do is to realize how much you can get done at a, at a, a more a localized level, because there your political will and skill are m- much more powerful than they are at the federal level. So so I think that the, the answer to, to, to that dilemma that you're talking about is start starting local. What in your community is not working? What needs to be changed? I mean, every day there's stories of people who take action to address issues related to their community. Often it starts in their church or or their, you know, their, their local environment, their block association. Again, so so in using, you know, Jefferson's model of what a democracy is about, it's decentralized. The more you can start with using your uh, uh, addressing, let's say, the, the, the public, the political arena in the local environment, I think there you, you'll see that you'll have incredible power. And my model is to build out from there. So start locally, and eventually you'll be meeting people and seeing change happen at the local level that might start expanding out to the county level and the state level. And that's that's how it works in concentric mm-hmm. circles from your local environment. Wow. I think that's the way to think about it. And um, I, I think that too many Americans, you know, uh, uh, go right to 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 the the feeling that 
they have little say in the overall economy or overall country as a whole because it's so vast. And of, co of course, there's some truth to that. But at the same time, the fact that only, let's say, 65% of Americans vote who are eligible is pretty sad. I mean, you know, it used to be in some countries that voting was, was obligatory. Now, I don't think that's appropriate. I think it should be a people's choice to vote. But I think more people who have the right should exercise it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, I think what you said about the concentric circles, people start maybe more at the state and the federal level in their conversations. Right. Right. Because they look at national global issues and then they, right. they don't think about what can I what can I do to engage in my own backyard first? You know, how does that kind of move upstream? And I, I often think about building community. It's like top down, bottoms up. Like who, who are the people at the top of the local level? How do you empower the people from the bottom? How do you right. work that process to drive and mobilize change? I'm reading a um, book right now called Power for All. And uh, it talks about creating a public narrative. And it's it's like the story of you, the story of us, like, you know, when you want to drive change. And then the story of like, why now? Right. And putting out a statement to really mobilize people I think a layer though is you have to do that in your own backyard first. Um, so I love what you said. So yeah. Seth, I, I want to move. Um, I, I have two outward and future facing questions that okay. have come to me over this call. And I have one inward to kind of close this off and we'll let people figure out where to find you. Something to what you were actually, I think is a nice segue from what you were talking about concentric circles uh, in business and the tech community right now, there's a lot going on with the DeFi and let's just say the crypto space and creating these communities that people have like the, their IDs in a way that they've never had them before. And there's some articles and things I've also read about um, how that's going to impact politics. What, what, how does government governance play a role in, you know, the future of humanity? And so as we look out 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, like where do you see the role of government and how it operate maybe different from how it does today? Well, the, the, the fear, of course, Brian, that I have is that there's a tendency because things are so complex and there's so much, so many sources of diffuse information, there's a tendency to move towards autocracy now. It's, it's almost easier to trust an autocrat to run things like where edicts are handed down as opposed to doing the bottom up work required in a democratic republic. And that that's what's frightening, because. Like in Europe, for example, you see it, uh, a tendency towards autocracy. You see autocrats who, whether, in many forms of government, whether it's Xi in China or Putin in Russia or Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey, who, because, because of the chaos, in a sense, they're, they're uh, claiming broad powers to run things the way that they want to, which, of course, it, you know, benefits that you know people like them and and those in in power. So that's the, that's the framework against which you know I think we have to recommit to a democratic form of government, which is sometimes really hard. In my book, I talk a lot about uh, the the researcher Daniel Allen, who's written a lot about what it takes to make a democracy work. And you know, she has, and I have as well as I, I write about very practical things that we can do to make our democratic uh, for, for a more, more, more practical, more pragmatic, uh, things like ranked choice voting, things like term limits. I mean, there are, there are things we can fix in our system to make it function better. And I think the point, the overall point I'm trying to make is that we need reform. 
that our founders didn't intend for the Constitution to be fixed. It was supposed to be malleable. We were supposed to change it every generation. And it requires some changes and some updates. And we, my sense is we need those things to make it vibrant again. So I, I guess the answer to your question is we need to be able to modify, to adapt to new mm. things and, and make changes. It can't be stagnant mm. um, because if, it's ta- if the democratic form stays too stagnant, it, it will be replaced by other forms of government. The well, interesting conversations ahead, which is why the work you're doing is beyond important to get people to kind of step up from the bottom up and then maybe take action in their own backyard. Right. Um, and, Fight on reason with reason at the local level. Absolutely. Love it. Uh, I think that's a key insight here. So another question I have is, let's just say, and whatever you're comfortable answering, um, the next election, we're a few years away. What do you see happening? And how do you, based on what you see happening, how do you think that'll impact the next maybe four to eight years down the line? Well, it's, it's I mean, there's so many unknowns, but I, I, it's, we're in a dangerous uh, place because right now, in my view, First of all, I think the whole two-party system has been a problem, and I discuss this in the book. It's become a monopoly, and I favor a a multi-party system with more voices. But at the least, we need two very, uh, two real uh, parties that are solving problems and living in the real world. And right now, a good part of the leadership of the Republican Party is not living in reality, and that's very dangerous. So, so I would say that if that part of uh, the Republican Party remains in control, all bets are, are off because there's an opportunity. Trump may get reelected or it's unclear what's going to happen. But we need to be living in reality. We, we need to recognize that viruses are not uh, a conspiracy and neither are vaccines and that we don't need to count the vote in Arizona for the 22nd time. We counted it 21 times, and it showed that Trump did not win. So this is what I mean about living in reality. Yeah. And so it, 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 the, the first question is, are we going to move past you know, kind of the Trump Republican Party? And there's some, I mean, Glenn, Glenn Youngkin, who won in Virginia as governor, he very much distanced himself. And, and he, he kind of, he conservative, operated in reality. I think Liz Cheney is making an incredible case, as now is, is Chris Christie that the Republican Party has to re-embrace, you know, our enlightenment inheritance. And so those are the people that I think if they can move the Republican Party forward away from this amygdala-driven wrath and rage that Trump has has fostered, but that really started before Trump, if they can move us forward, I think we'll have a healthier democracy. If not, I fear for the the future of of our republic. Wow. Well, you, you you speak beyond eloquently around these topics. Uh, obviously, you've done read hundreds of books on them, written a book combining all your research, but it's just poetic. And you say it with such grace, yet you know, you're like the model example, I think, for teaching business leaders, like how to talk around these issues in a way that's that's so eloquent. So I, I just appreciate your insight and answering my questions, which you know, could get dicey just depending on how you answer them. Um, well, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I love to hear from listeners. And, and you know, so americanschismbook.com, which is my the website for the book, it has a place to, you know, enter questions or ask questions. And I, I love to get in touch with listeners and readers because I like to engage on these topics. And I'm doing a lot of work right now with a group called Braver Angels, 
which is a, a national organization, nonprofit that gets people together at the local level to discuss politics. And I'm, I'm enjoying that work and would love to do more of it. So I hope I can hear from your listeners. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And, and Seth, if they want to reach out to you, where, where would they find you um, as well? Sure. So americanschismbook.com is a place where they can uh, they can email me or they can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn and, and just message me or Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I'm on all those platforms where they can message me and find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you for the great work you're doing for humanity, for the, you know, the gover- governance of you know, our democratic system. And uh, it's been such a joy to get to know you and learn from you. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure working with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.